man. It's good. Uh, um, during worship, singing about God as a holy God, meaning that He's totally other and outside anything we could even totally even comprehend. We cannot, we will not, and we'll have eternity to get to know Him and see Him face to face. Um, but even in His holiness, uh, he's a God that Hagar gave a name to him as the God who sees, El Roy. Uh, you may be struggling with a sense, well, God doesn't really see, he's not there, he doesn't care. I want to encourage you and remind you that he is. He is a God that is ever-present. One of his eternal qualities is being om- omnipresent. He's omniscient, that he knows all things. He knows everything that's going on in your life he has not and will not forget. He is constantly there. He is a God who will not leave us nor forsake us. And uh, I just wanted you to be encouraged in that, because I know some of us, some of you are going through some pretty difficult times. But just as a reminder of El Roy, uh, the God who sees. Uh, it's been 100 days since the attack in Israel. It's hard to believe that it's been that long. Uh, and there's still about 120, 130 some hostages still uh, somewhere in the land. And I just want to take a moment to pray for them, uh, as well as pray for uh, their enemies, our enemies, uh, Hamas and their leadership. Um, so let's, uh, if you agree with me in prayers. Father, we thank you that you are indeed incredibly awesome and holy. God, we know that uh, you are the one who sees all things and knows all things, and that you have not forgotten about those who are being held somewhere uh, in the land. Lord, we ask for a miraculous recovery for them. God, we pray that for their release, uh, that in their release, Lord, it wouldn't just be of a physical sense, but even a spiritual sense, that they would see you as the one who released them. They would come to know you, Jesus, as their Messiah, and that they would turn and proclaim you as your goodness as they come out uh, from captivity. And Lord, as difficult as it is for us to pray for our enemies, you've asked us to do so, and so we do. We pray for the leaders that intercede on behalf of the leadership of Hamas. God, we pray that you would tear off the scales of their eyes, that you turn their heart of stone into flesh, that you would unplug their ears, that they would be able to hear you, Uh, that ultimately they would return and come towards you and proclaim you as their Lord and Savior. And that would be such an incredible thing to give you praise for something that seems totally not even possible in the natural. So Lord, we do. We intercede on behalf uh, for your namesake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Some of you may be aware... Um, in our body, that we've had two members uh, of our body have gone on to be with the Lord and to be in his presence in paradise, uh, Mike Keith and Tiffany Katz. And our hearts are saddened for their loss, for these two really incredible individuals. The pain of the passing is so very real. And I want just to remind us briefly that the reason for the pain and the sorrow is that death was never meant to be part of God's plan for mankind. And yet as believers in Jesus Christ, we know for absolute certainty 
that death is not the end. As Jesus has defeated both sin and death through his own death, resurrection, and ascension. And so as the body of Christ, uh, we're we're mourning the loss together with the families. Um, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do and have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So therefore, encourage one another with these words. So indeed, brothers and sisters, I hope that you are encouraged by those. Again, death is, uh, is unfortunate, inevitable, in this life because of the decisions that Adam and Eve made, um, but it has been completely been defeated. So be encouraged. Uh, this Saturday at 2 p.m. here in the main building, uh, we will be celebrating the life of Mike Keith. Um, uh, please contact the office, uh, RC Lovely Kim. Um, there's lots of things, opportunities for us to be able to show love and shower the love upon the Keith family uh, for this. So there's opportunities to serve, so please reach out to them. And again, Saturday at uh, 2 p.m. For those that um, haven't been with us in a while, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We've been going through this journey in our current series and the journey through the book of Acts. Um, We have for us an account of the life of the early church in Jerusalem that's been given to us by the good Dr. Luke who also meticulously captured the life of Christ in the book that's named after him, the Gospel according to Luke. So Acts really is just Luke part two. So thus far in the book of Acts, we've had a couple things occur thus far. Some highlights is that Jesus has told his disciples to hurry up and wait, and to wait in Jerusalem, and to wait for the Holy Spirit that he would come upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you're not familiar with the whole book, it might be helpful to give a very overview quickly of the book. So from chapters 1 through 7, we have the record of these first witnesses are there in Jerusalem. This is the center from which the good news, the gospel, will be spread throughout the whole earth. Centers in Jerusalem. And as we get to chapters 8 through 12, it's about Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 8 13 to the end of the book, it's the record of the gospel being spread to the known ends of the earth. And so it's here in Jerusalem, probably within the first two months after Pentecost, when the new temple, those made up of the followers of Jesus Christ, those who are now filled with the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, are gathered together, and they're taking care of one another, that we come to Acts chapter 5. And at this time, we are told that there is no one in need. And this would truly be the case for this community for the next 10 years until we get to chapter 11 when the funds seemingly run out 
Jerusalem is hit hard by a very severe famine. And since the gospel has now been spread out, believers outside of Jerusalem are sending funds back to the church to help them. But stay tuned until we get to chapter 11. Come back for that. A couple weeks, several weeks. And so these new believers in Jerusalem primarily are made up of those who were once Jews, made up from the large group of what Luke has thus far called them, the full number of those who believed. And these were gathered together, loving their neighbor as themselves, being seen in the free will offerings giving to help those in need. We ended last week, if you're here, reading about the certain one named Barnabas, whom we are told was a Levite from the island of Cyprus, who sold some property. We're not told how Barnabas came to own this property, and we don't know if this property was actually in the land of Israel or back home in the island of Cyprus. A common misunderstanding is that Levites were not allowed to own land. However, deep in numbers, Moses tells us that Levites were allowed to own pasture land. And so wherever this property is, we need to keep in mind that this wasn't just a mere real estate transaction. That occurred. It was a free will offering in order to help the community of, of followers of Jesus. And this is the same Barnabas that we will encounter later on throughout the book of Acts, who became a pillar in the early community of believers. And so if you're looking for someone to follow as a disciple of Jesus, Barnabas is a great example of someone worth following. The community in Jerusalem at this point has been called a multitude. For we've had 3,000 added on the day of Pentecost, and the numbers were added on day by day since then. And an important aspect of this community is that we are told that they are, again, one heart and of one soul. And this community was growing. We read the sort of things that they, do, that they did together. For as this community went, they were still going up to the temple each and every day. They were fellowshipping in their homes together, and they received their food and ate together. Eating together was a great way for doing fellowship. It was a place where worship was so interconnected in this community that it truly reflected the values of the kingdom. Relational in the sense that they were taking care of each other's needs, as well as actively engaging in the spread of the gospel message. It truly is a great example to us of how to live out the greatest commandments within community, of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, when I was selected to, read, to preach on this passage, I was a bit of a shock. I, I was looking at the text saying, wow, this is pretty difficult. It's not very easy. What are we going to get out of this? And so spending some time in it, man, there is so much depth to this, I'm not even be able to scratch the surface on this. And the best thing is we're going to have the rest of eternity to talk about, particularly this passage, too. <laughs> But it is. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, it speaks to God's e eternal character. It speaks about his love and his justice and his holiness, his righteousness, his long-suffering, and on and on and on. So what I'd like to do is read the text, and then we'll walk through it. And, but I want to start in uh, back in chapter 4, starting in verse 33. And we'll read through it, and then, like I said, step through Paul. So... Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many 
as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Then the young men came and, and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the peoples by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. That is our passage that we are going to attempt to go through and to find out the wonderful awesomeness things that God has revealed himself to us in this text. So that whole introduction, that whole backdrop, as we get to chapter 5, it starts off with a very small word, but. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, but. This transition could easily be overlooked. And I would encourage you, as you read Scripture, to take your time and slow down as you read. To notice the words. They just aren't in there littered arbitrarily just to fill up space. These are the very words breathed out by God for our own good. And what Luke, the author here of Acts, presents us with is a comparison He's comparing the free will offering that was given by Barnabas, which we talked about last week, and the gift that is now be presented by the certain couple, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Though initially it might not appear to be much symbolism in the meaning of each of their names, Ananias and Sapphira, because Luke truly is attesting to the historical event that occurred in the early life of the body of Christ. Ananias means God is gracious, Sapphira means beautiful, similar to where we get the word sapphire. But I do find it incredibly ironic the names of these two as it relates to the events that will transpire. And hold on to that. So in verse 2, we are told, and they 
And the man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, and if we just stopped right there, period, stop, man, it would sound great. Right? The husband and the wife, they're on the same team. We know what's going on together. It continues that sense of unity that all the members had in common. However, there is something far more sinister at work here. And this is clearly pointed out in the conjunction that's in verse 3. Notice what we have here. It's another comparison being made here. But Peter, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? This filling of the heart of Ananias is directly from the father of lies. And as such can only result of the fourth telling of lies and end up in destruction. Peter is calling this out as it's being compared with a juxtaposed against the filling of the spirit that we read back in Acts chapter 2. When the gospel message was given to all the nations as the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the absolute truth of who Jesus is and which resulted in many receiving eternal life. But here we have in the very early moments of the small fledgling community of believers an attack by the enemy from within. Ananias had an option to keep the proceeds of the sale. There was absolutely no requirements on behalf of the community that were placed upon him and his wife or forced him to give these proceeds to them. Ananias had a choice. And so Peter, as empowered by the Holy Spirit, inquires Ananias and asks a very straightforward question to get to the heart of the matter. What made you think of doing such a thing? It very well could be that the desire for human praise, possibly after seeing the response of the community gave to Barnabas, Ananias was hoping that his declared gift would be perceived as being extremely generous. It could be that the desire far outweighed the praise from God if he had truly given a free will offering in truth. But to Ananias and Sapphira's free will offering, God had no regard. And this should direct our attention back to two brothers who were born outside of Eden, Cain and Abel, where God tells Cain, after Cain presented an offering to God, telling him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. C.S. Lewis has a, has a book. It's called Screwtape Letters. Anyone read that one or familiar with it? A couple? All right. Uh, if you have not read it, I would encourage you to do so. Clive Stapleton Lewis, in writing this book as Christian satire, is to show how temptation is an attempt to infiltrate believers of Christ and to lead them astray, to lead them off the narrow path of the kingdom. And it also shows how Jesus ultimately triumphs over evil in the end. And it's, it's written in this format of having these two characters, Screwtape and his understudy, Wormwood, and they're writing letters back and forth on how best they can defeat the perceived enemy, which are believers. And as it relates to Ananias and Sapphira, there's a quote from Screwtape that really hits on what's going on here. C.S. Lewis wrote, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it. Well, really, it's finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance. 
the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work. Build up in him a sense of being really at home in the earth, which is just what we want. As believers in Jesus, we are part of another kingdom, one that is not of this world, one that is a kingdom of light and not of the dominion of darkness. What the dominion of darkness wants is for the citizens of heaven to believe, to hold on to, to think that all there really is to this life is everything we see in front of us. And to hold on so dear to those things that we perceive with our senses and to get so caught up with them that we get so completely absorbed into this world. That the enemy's tactic is that we forget the citizenship as believers that we hold. That as citizens of heaven, we are called to keep our eyes on the heavenly things and not of this earth. And in order to do this, we are called to transform our mind, something that's reiterated over and over again throughout the New Testament. For by doing so, it will aid in our actions and our emotions to the values of the kingdom. Once we transform our mind and set our eyes upon it, it's transforming our mind so that our will aligns with kingdom values, these emotions, those kind of nuances, the spice of life, not the important things, but your will and your mind are the important things. These things just add in to it. They should not direct us into doing it and what we do in this life. Verse 3 continues going on. Telling Ananias is telling, or Peter's telling Ananias, you have kept back for yourself. For Ananias, we are told that he kept back for himself some of these proceeds. And it's interesting that the first crisis, again, to hit the church is within is not due to personality conflicts because we have a, a frozen uh, baptismal, right, John? Uh, that we've got <laughs> blue chairs, you know, we don't have the right ministry here. That's not uh, what, what the attack was in the early church. Our last lack of ministry programs, it was using and it was tied to money. Verse 4, while it's remained unsold, did not remain your own, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? There's nothing, again, that required Ananias to give up the property, nor anything that required him to even give the money from the sale of the property. And we can almost hear the desperation of Peter as he asks Ananias in verse last part of verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter's question is more along the lines of, how could you do this, Ananias? Each time that there's these questions within the text, particularly as it relates to mentioning our heart, we should stop and pause and truly consider where each of our hearts are at. For we have been called, just as like the early community of faith, is to love the Lord God with all of our heart and our mind, soul, and strength, and to place God at the center of everything, especially when it comes to serving him. As we consider it, what are our motivations for what we do, especially as it relates to within the household of faith? Is it truly to honor God and to praise him? Or is it for people that would view us and perceive us as being something that we were not? Notice what Peter says next, proclaiming that what Ananias did was not sin towards the community, towards man, but towards the living God, towards the one that filled the temple, the one through the new covenant that dwells now in his people. 
Peter proclaims this truth to Ananias, telling him that he has lied to the Holy Spirit. And here, here we have in the very early portions of Acts that the truth that the Holy Spirit is part of the triune Godhead. And that this Holy Spirit is filling the new temple, the new covenant people of God who are doing what the physical temple represented. In verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Unfortunately, English doesn't really give us the full view of what happened. For just as Peter was speaking simultaneously, Ananias fell down and died. Whoa! Seems a little bit too Old Testament-y, doesn't it? <laughs> Especially since we just had Jesus and he's risen from the grave. But what it points to is to the severity of the situation that's occurring in the early church. It's this early development within the body of Christ that God's holiness has been violated. God's holiness has been mocked, and God will not be mocked. Luke uses the same word of kept back, and it's used in another account when someone also kept back a portion for himself, something that belonged to God, another individual whose mind was not on the community itself and therefore committed embezzlement of the worst kind, embezzlement of the Almighty. And it points us back to events that were recorded for us in Joshua chapter 7. We have the awful story of Achan at Ai. The historical account uses that same word, kept back, as it's used in this passage in Acts. And real briefly, because we don't have time to go through all of Joshua chapter 7, briefly, when Israel entered into the promised land, they defeated Jericho. The people of Israel went up to attack city Ai, but they got defeated. And Joshua consults the Lord, figuring out what is going on. They found out that someone within Israel stole things. They, someone kept back some items that belonged to the Lord. They embezzled things from the Lord. Those items were supposed to be utterly destroyed. And therefore, judgment, swift judgment, came upon Achan and his entire family. I would encourage you to read Joshua chapter 7. But notice that even in the early stages of development of the household of faith, the enemy has already attacked from the outside. If you recall from last week, the religious leaders were greatly annoyed that they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they threw those into prison who were preaching the good news. But now, because that didn't work, the enemy attacks from within. And it's interesting, at significant points in the life of not only Israel, but also in the church, in the worship of God, that there are these attacks that go against the holiness, against the very character of who God is. There's another instance that we read about. Right when the tabernacle was all set up, the priests were given their gowns, they were ready to offer praise and, and offerings unto the Lord. That event took place immediately right after that. That God's holiness was mocked in Leviticus chapter 10. Where it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from bef before Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. It's a reminder to us that God will not be mocked, and he will stand for his holiness. So just in a similar fashion to these events that occurred in Joshua as the people were entering into the promised land, and in Leviticus when they were set to worship the Lord as he had commanded, this whole passage in Acts reminds us that we serve a loving and a just and a holy God. 
one who sees all things and he knows all things. And it should remind us of the seriousness of sin. That there indeed is a severe penalty for sin, a payment, a wage, which is death. Man, and I praise God that he doesn't act that way this day. Amen. None of us <laughs> would be here. He would instantly deal with sin, but the reason why he doesn't is because of his long suffering. He desires that people would turn and repent and come back to him. And I praise him for that. That's part of his chesed, Hebrew steadfast, faithful love that he has towards us and towards the world that he desires that all would repent. But when we sin, because we will, because we are not yet freed from the very presence of sin, don't run away from God in shame. Instead, run towards him. Run towards him in confidence. Boldly approach him, despite our nakedness and our shame, and confess your sin to him. And he will forgive us because of the work of Jesus. However, if you have not accepted Jesus yet, I want to inform you that your penalty is still yet due. And that today you can have that penalty paid full and dealt with. And that is what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us. And through accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that he died and he rose again and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, you can be set free. So we have Ananias falling dead at the feet of Peter. In verse 6 and 7, the young men rose up, wrapped him up, carried him up, buried him. <laughs> and after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. It's really hard to imagine what was going on through the community of faith at this moment. They had to wear the right soul, right mind, ever knew everything, knew everything what was going on in each of their lives. And the husband's dead. Three hours to process what just took place. They had seen someone die, and now they see the wife come in. Man, was it so quiet you could hear a pin drop? What was the atmosphere? Was it a bustling atmosphere? We don't know. It's kind of fun to think about. <laughs> we wonder. So as Sapphire enters in verse 8, unaware of what just took place, Peter offers her a chance to repent offers her a chance to come clean, not even knowing what occurred to her husband. And she admits that the price was given that was told by her husband is correct. And in verse 9, we have another, that another conjunction. Conjuncture. Conjunction? Is that the right word? Conjunction. Thank you. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Schoolhouse rock. Yay! <laughs> If you don't know what it is, look it up on YouTube. It's great. Um, yeah, our home be homeschooled, right? <laughs> but Peter in verse nine, again, he's contrasting the statement that's made by Sapphira through the power meant of the Holy Spirit, and Peter reveals that they both agreed upon this act, both the price and the fact that they kept some of that money away from them, because why? Because the Holy Spirit, as God, is God, sees and knows all things. What would have happened if possibly Ananias could have gotten away with this testing? Could it possibly, if he could have gotten away with it, 
It would have shown that these men, these apostles, the very beginning early leaders of the church could have been deceived. However, it's this testing illuminated it. It is the one who is filled, that it filled the, sorry. However, this testing illuminated who it is that was filled and what they were filled with. As believers in Jesus Christ, they're filled by the Holy Spirit. And it is God that they were testing. They were testing the omniscient one, the all-knowing one. They were testing the omnipresent one, the one who is present everywhere. And this text is a good reminder that that's never a good idea. And it's resulted in an instant accountability for their actions. In verse 10, we say, immediately she fell down and breathed her last. And what we get in the response to this event here in verse 11 is that there was a great fear that came. Not in the form of being scared, but the kind of honor and reverence and acknowledgement of a holy and just God that is here, is aware, and is active. For just as the author of Hebrews tells us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And this is what the community of faith is to do, to worship in reverence and awe and sing praises unto the Lord, just as we do each Sunday morning. To sing praises to the one who breathed and spoke the universe into existence. Not taking lightly the opportunity that we get to assemble together as a church as we worship him together as the church. And notice here that we have the very first instance of the word translated in the church, the ecclesia. This is the bride of Christ. This is why God acted so quickly and so instantly in this instance of dealing with sin. And in our worship of God, we should be aware and praise him again for his long suffering towards us. The reminder that once we sin, we will not be instantly, well, I'm not a prophet, so I shouldn't say all the time, but most times, as we've seen, as we are a testament of it today, that we have not been struck down by the holy God because of our sin. And so we should worship him and be aware of that fact, that he takes sin very strongly. The church, Paul speaks of the church, the assembly, that's the called out ones here in Ephesus chapter 4, and speaks about some of the things that we are called to do as the church. In Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 22 to 25, he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's the idea of constantly being renewed. It's a constant action that we are to do daily. It's part of our sanctification, the process of becoming more and more of the image of Christ. And to put on that new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And that's part of this, the new humanity of the church. It's the raceless race, the bride of Christ. That each of us, once we accept Jesus Christ, we become a new person. We are given new life. And we're giving that at the moment that we accept Jesus Christ and become justified, giving a right standing in front of a holy and just God. And as such, with this new life we are given, we are called not to live a dualistic life. Some in the old because it feels good, and some in the new because, gosh, I feel real fearful of God. But to do it wholeheartedly as a response 
to what God has done for us and given us. It's the only appropriate response. Not out of a sense of dutiful obligation of following the rules, but of a life of utter adoration, an entire life of worship for what he has done for us. So therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're going to have a mindset that together we are members, not in some kind of Sunday morning cool kids club, not in a sense of an organization, but much more like an organism, a close-knit relationship where each person is needed. And in this relationship, love gets demonstrated towards one another as we lay down our preferences for one another, to live a sacrificial servant lifestyle that Jesus so exemplified for us. Living in love and in truthfulness, both of which are necessitated, because as soon as deceit comes in and lies come in, it will cause self-destruction and death. As members of one another, we are to share about the great things that God has done for us, is currently doing in our midst, and will do in the future. It's all part of our proclaiming the gospel message and, and recalling the wonderfulness things that God has done for us. We have that opportunity as a community on first Thursday of every month, 6 p.m. We can come in here and praise the Lord, giving testimonies of that fact, of what he has done for us, what he's currently doing, and what we'll do, what he will do in the future. It's an opportunity to build up the church, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another. Back in Acts, notice what it says, that the fear wasn't just for those who saw Ananias and Sapphira die, but all those who heard about it. Fear came upon everyone, both those in the church that saw it and others. And this would have to come from that community sharing the good news, especially the good news of the gospel. And then there's this kind of switch in the text where we get, where Luke is recording this narrative of these events of God's justice and holiness and dealing with sin. And then it kind of switches a little bit here in verse 12 where Luke records for us the mighty signs and wonders were done, as he says, by the hands of the apostles. And this work of the apostles was not done in some secret, closed-off corner in Jerusalem. It wasn't done out some cave out in, uh, in the Dead Sea or out in the Judean wilderness, out of sight, out of mind. No, it was done right in the temple complex, where the multitudes of people would have seen it could hear about what they're doing and to learn and to know of the great power of God that is amongst them. These signs and wonders that the apostles were doing are a direct answer to a prayer that the community prayed back in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 29 to 30, says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Man, what a, what a wonderful place to share the good news that in the very same place that their master, Jesus, taught, where he proclaimed to the people that he was indeed the Messiah inside the very temple complex. And they kind of give us a visual because... I love pictures and try to tie it into the text to give us uh, a visual sense of what's going on. I have a couple of pictures to show. This first picture 
it's kind of hard to see maybe the, the wording, but don't uh, or kind of ignore that. The idea is to give us a grand overview of the temple complex. This has been the time uh, during Jesus. This is the complex that was built by King Herod. Um, it might be kind of hard to see, but there are several courts within here. The outer court being the court of the Gentiles, where everyone was allowed. But if you are not a Jew, that's as close to the holy place that you could get. And, as, and all you could do is sit and worship from afar and observe from afar. And as you move closer to the actual temple, to the holy place, further restrictions are made. For you have the court of the women, where both men and women were allowed. Then you have the court of Israel, for the court of the men. And the court of the priests, where only those priests that were in their priestly garments could go. And then finally, the holy of holies, where the only the high priest once a year could go in. Now, the second picture shows the court of the Gentiles in blue. Okay, and this is the place where everyone would have been allowed to. It was a place where so much of Jesus' ministry took place. This is where the animals for the sacrifices would have been kept. Hence, when you read about Jesus cleansing the temple, we read as Jesus sat down and made a whip, drove out all the money changers, all the animals out, that, somewhere in that blue area is where that was done. So you imagine the sounds in the animals, the smells in the animals, all the bustle about that's going on. What an amazing place to proclaim the gospel. And if you notice on the bottom side of the picture, there's a long eastern wall, one of the main entrances into the temple, the beautiful gate, the eastern gate, uh, and on that is a long portico or porch. If you see that, it kind of looks like a, a piano keys, the black and white keys in the back. Uh, that is Solomon's portico. It was estimated to be about 40 feet tall, 115 feet long. Its ceiling was covered in cedar paneling. And all those columns were out of marble. Unfortunately, all that stuff was destroyed with the rest of the temple complex in 70 AD. But this is just to give us an idea, a perspective of where this is taking place. This is the place where the signs and wonders were being done. The gospel message was being shared and where the master himself preached. The strategic location of sharing the gospel message. And the disciples now are demonstrating the power of God through their signs and wonders. For now, the Lord's presence has extended from the Holy of Holies now to, to include all those out in the periphery, including those who congregate in the court of the Gentiles. Acts 5.13 tells us that none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's an interesting result of these signs and wonders that were being done by the apostles. For it seems that none of the rest dared join them. Could it be that the other believers don't want to be with the apostles for fear of persecution? But yet, the people kept them in high esteem. Some were put in fear while others were drawn in, which may have resulted in those coming to faith because in the very next verse it says, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women multitudes added. And notice, it's men and women who join. This should scream out to us. We should not forget how important this small mention is in a first century text in which was primarily ruled by the heavy patriarchy. The fact that the message of the gospel is going out to all, the message of hope is to all. There's no one outside of this offer of the free gift of salvation. It's offered to everyone. 
In verse 15, it says, So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. At least his shadow. This is demonstrating really the hope and the expectation of the people. Note that the text doesn't say that Peter's shadow actually healed people. What it's showing is the eagerness and the wantingness of seeing God move amongst them. And what we see is that the beginning, is that the message beginning to now head out from the Holy of Holies, spreading outwards from the center as it spreads outwards. For in verse 16, the people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem for the power to heal and the power to be free. The message of the gospel is now spreading out, taking those out of the dominion of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light so that all were healed. So this very short portion of scripture here in Acts chapter 5 is kind of similar to a battlefield report where we've seen the shock, the attack of the enemy from within and God's swift judgment is issued upon sin and we've seen the awe as now signs and wonders are being done by the power of the Holy Spirit and the message of the kingdom is being spread. We need to remind ourselves that we are fighting a battle. The war has been won by Jesus Christ, but the battle that we fight is as such as Paul says in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The battle has ultimately been won, but there is a fight that we need to be fighting against. It's not against one another. It's not against the non-believers. It's against the powers that are against us. But, Paul says in Corinthians, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep transforming your mind, allowing the Holy, empowering of the Holy Spirit to enable you to do the good works that he has called you to do from before the foundations of the earth. And as we take communion together, let us be reminded that this is a victory celebration. Sin and death have been defeated, and we will share in this meal with him sometime soon. So for our king and his kingdom, amen? Amen. amen. If you can please stand.